Hi, and welcome to episode one of the Unpacking Weight Science podcast called Stuck in a Weight-Centric Operating System. I'm your host, Fiona Willer, weight-neutral professional development dietitian, academic, and size acceptance advocate. The learning outcomes for episode one are, one, recognize the various individual, social, and structural factors which currently reinforce weight centrism and higher weight as a problem. Number two, appreciate some of the ways that weight centrism results in discrimination and unethical healthcare practice. Number three, appreciate the impact of confirmation bias on our own beliefs and the beliefs of others. And number four, recognise the phenomenon of cognitive dissonance when presented with information that conflicts with our own beliefs. So the purpose of this whole podcast series is to examine the ways that weight bias has sent us down an unhelpful and sometimes harmful path regarding the meaning and utility of human body weight. Weight bias has misled the work and actions of researchers, clinicians, health professionals and well-meaning loved ones. I've got so much I want to share, namely the skills to dissect a research study and identify strengths, weaknesses and weight bias that is written into the fabric of most weight-related research. The skills to identify in yourself whether you're competent at using a weight-neutral approach with your clients, patients, population of interest or research participants. And finally, the ability to introduce and discuss this stuff with the people you work with, colleagues and customers in a way that honours ethical principles, informed consent and evidence-based practice. It's taken me many years to build up my skills and confidence, but I hope the process takes less time for you. I know that from my five years of delivering workshops to health professionals in weight-neutral approaches and weight science, that the path to skill attainment isn't a predictable straight line. You may already be across epidemiological research concepts, but less strong on cognitive biases. Perhaps you've used the non-diet approach in practice for years, but feel pangs of fear when it comes to standing up for it with colleagues. You may feel relatively confident with reading research articles in general, but feel a bit stuck when it comes to the nitty gritty of statistical analysis. Basically, there's no one best place to start. As this podcast series goes on, it will circle back around to similar concepts time and time again, each with the opportunity for you to gain further insight into a concept you may have thought you already knew about. In dietetics education, we have traditionally positioned the dietitian as a kind of swap-and-go professional, a translator of scientific evidence, purveyor of expert advice, and a source of accountability and encouragement for the behaviour change for the client. Very little time is spent on deeper introspection into our own meaning and values of food, eating, bodies and health, and how our life experiences have shaped these. Even less time is spent on how all of the emotional and psychological baggage that we bring into the room with us, or the research study, or the public health campaign, is effortlessly projected onto our client, disrupting that therapeutic alliance and diluting our potential to actually help. This results in the newly minted health professional devaluing and unappreciating both what they as an individual bring to the therapeutic relationship, but also a gap in the appreciation of how being a human means that we are all at the mercy of cognitive biases which attempt to rein in open-mindedness at every step. So episode one is a summary of the weight-centric operating environment that we've both endured personally as humans and that we endure also in a different way as health and science workers, as well as a brief explainer on the cognitive biases that reinforce this weight-centric environment. My mo roadmap for doing this is through the discourses which regard larger bodies as a problem. There's a diagram in the show notes showing the various degrees of attitude communication, uh, which shows personally held beliefs moving out to those expressed by people directly in contact with the individual, then to the local community, which includes their social media silo. But I'm going to start with the one furthest from the individual 
with public health messaging, advertising and government. I'll cover BMI in more detail in a few weeks, including its history, but for our purpose today, the summary is a relationship between higher body weight and younger age at death than predicted was noticed. Later, it was noticed that some chronic diseases had an earlier onset and greater prevalence in people in larger bodies when compared with people in smaller bodies. These relationships are the basis of all of the medical and research concern regarding body weight. It was understandably but incorrectly thought that if somebody in a body classified as obese would lose weight to not be obese anymore, that their health risks would be the same as someone whose body had always had a lower weight. It's an example of what I like to call body as a cup of water thinking. Just pour some out and it'll be indistinguishable from a cup that has always been half full. Of course, in reality, bodies that have been larger and then become smaller bear evidence of that change in their body composition, in their metabolic processes, in their bone density, in and on their skin and body tissue, and of course, in the thoughts, habits and experiences of the person to whom that body belongs. However, that cup, the kind of cup of water thinking is still widely prevalent in public health messages. That obesity is bad because it coincides with a range of bad things and everything would be better for everyone if people were no longer obese. Obesity is framed as a problem from a health burden, medical care cost and economic loss perspective. So clinicians, researchers and entrepreneurs have taken that brief, that concept that larger people must strive to lose weight and smaller people must stop themselves from gaining weight and totally run with it. The research world abounds with a thousand and one ways to lose weight over three to six months with a 12 month follow up studies. The prevailing attitude is that the research team who discovers the solution to obesity, in inverted commas there, will make headlines for eternity, save the world, guarantee them research funding forever, etc. It's a total hero maker. The needle in a haystack thinking is so deeply ingrained that no one dares to consider that there is no needle and that the vast majority of haystacks have never had needles in them. For clinicians, our clinical guidelines across the world now recommend 5 to 10% weight loss for people classified as obese by BMI, and many primary care providers are compelled by their professional guidelines to discuss weight at every consultation with a larger person. The sentiment that a healthy lifestyle has benefits without weight loss appears in every set of guidelines, but is usually at the end of a general paragraph buried somewhere unindexed in the middle of the guidelines. Little attention is given to promoting an informed consent procedure that allows a client to opt out of weight loss discussions altogether or to choose lifestyle changes over weight loss goals. As it stands right now, a number on the scale is considered um, a, if not the key health target, a means by which a person can be labelled healthy or unhealthy, okay or problematic. This means that people attending their general practitioner for an earache or unusual bleeding or a skin check are supposed to receive encouragement to lose weight. For people who've been uh, trying damn hard to do just that for decades and or who have a problematic relationship with their body or eating, these unsolicited discussions sting and drive people away from their health providers. Dietitians receive endless referrals for weight loss. It's in our top three reasons for referral to a dietitian. And the power differential between doctors and allied health professionals makes it really difficult for dietitians to question the reason for referral, even when the larger client in front of them passes their lifestyle assessment with flying colours and the strategies that would need to be used to induce weight loss in that person would be likely to negatively impact on that excellent lifestyle. 
For the most part, the theory of weight loss is taught during training, unchanged for decades, while the failure of the theory to result in expected real-world outcomes is dismissed as non-compliance, that the people trying to lose weight just weren't trying hard enough or for not long enough and uh, or were lying to themselves or lying to the clinician, which comes across as a particularly nasty form of medical gaslighting. News media reports both what science and public health is telling them, as well as what they think is newsworthy, which is really a reflection on public sentiment. Larger bodies are universally depicted only in conjunction with negative news stories and are depicted in a way that reflects the negative stereotype, so without faces, sloppily dressed and engaged in low-energy behaviours, or eating negative meaning-laden foods. Capitalistic systems are happy to make a buck from anything. And selling solutions to perceived problems is a surefire winner. Commercial organisations that sell weight loss services and products use sciencey rhetoric to justify the pursuit of weight loss, then swap in their usually undetested weight loss gimmick, plastered with pictures of people who have never used their product but whose appearance is meant to represent its effectiveness. The weight loss industry wants you to believe that you can lose weight and keep it off with their and only their special program. The high failure rate of other diets usually feature in their marketing but never happen with their program, of course. If they were compelled to show before and after photos, which reflect a typical user of the service or product over two to five years, it would be patently obvious how underhand virtually all weight loss product marketing strategy is. Even bariatric surgeons are pleased to provide a service where more lasting than most weight loss is exchanged for the amputation or replumbing of a perfectly functioning digestive tract. Moving closer to the individual now, family, friends and colleagues often position weight as an important determinant of finding and maintaining a romantic relationship, of being able to be an effective worker, of being able to be an effective parent, of being an important signal to you as a person that you have your act together. If this hasn't affected you personally, I'd like you to think about how you would feel if you were told you weren't deserving of a meaningful relationship, of having a baby, of accessing a joint replacement operation that would remedy the incredible pain you live with every day, of seeking a fulfilling career, of earning as much as thinner colleagues for the same performance, of visiting a medical provider for a condition unrelated to weight and receiving treatment for that condition without a lecture about your weight of interacting in social gatherings and on social media without receiving appearance-based insults, emboldened by sciencey justifications which render the way you actually live your life irrelevant to their narrative, which self-evidently engenders disbelief and has no room for understanding the physical and psychological harms that come with pursuing weight loss. If you go through your life and, or with the assumption that being a lower weight is better and so then weight loss for people with larger bodies is always good, then you'll read everything written about weight seamlessly through that lens, which is strongly tinted with confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is the inbuilt tendency that humans have to see the things that they expect. For example, women who are desperate to get pregnant tend to report seeing unusual numbers of pregnant women out in public. Weight bias and judgments about the shape of somebody's body and what it says about the way that they must eat means that people with larger bodies eating in public are scrutinised regardless of what they're eating. Eating a salad, nice try sucker, we know what you usually eat. Eating a burger, well that's just typical. Their negative judgments are reinforced either way. The eating habits of smaller people tend to go unnoticed except except for reflecting fears about getting fat by eating in a certain way. 
So our conditioned assumptions about body weight and human behaviour lead us to be able to read weight-centric narratives seamlessly and make us tend to reject narratives or information that contradicts what we believe to be true. Contradictory information is dismissed, rationalised, as in the case of of, uh, observing that larger person eating, all roads lead to the same negative narrative, or denied to avoid having to consider the information that's in conflict to your beliefs. If you disrupt your comfortable confirmation bias uh, bubble enough, the result is that you'll feel yucky or angry or attacked. And that phenomenon is called cognitive dissonance. And the mind will involuntarily go to great lengths to, invo- to avoid it, to avoid that yucky feeling. We're also more likely to clearly remember things which confirm our beliefs about something. That's called selective recall. Essentially, the brain likes to store information a bit like a list of all the reasons that prove I'm right. (laughs) You've got to note that even weight-neutral advocates' brains work in the same way. So open-mindedness to appraising stuff from weight-centric and weight-neutral perspectives is really important, not only to anticipate what your clients or colleagues might say who may still be working in a weight-centric way, but also to ensure that your perspectives are still informed in a balanced way. If you feel uncomfortable about some of the concepts discussed in Unpacking Weight Science, I'd like to invite you to examine your thoughts and feelings before dismissing the concept. Dismissal of an idea because cognitive dissonance feels yucky is an unconscious reaction. To truly examine it, you need to go back and give it a do-over. It's a rich opportunity for reflection and growth. In my experience, the stronger the negative emotional reaction someone has to weight-neutral concepts and unpacking of weight science, the more values-based their work is and the more internalised weight stigma and or fat phobia they might hold. Remembering that a belief is a bit like a fact, while an emotion is a reaction to something, an embodied feeling, it is essentially these strong emotions that are pinning their weight-centric beliefs to the wall. For an academic with skin in the obesity research game, you might first feel horrified, amused, angry. I've seen all of these reactions. Clinicians can feel all of these things as well as an existential angst when they realise that letting go of weight centrism means that a large chunk of their professional work or professional identity may disappear. For someone who's had a lived experience of years of trying to reduce their weight, being harassed by loved ones and medical professionals to do so, having repeated... Um, weight regains, perhaps usage of weight loss medications or even surgery, considering the world from a weight neutral perspective could be scary as hell or even utterly inconceivable. When all meaning about about a body has boiled down to it being good or bad due to its weight or shape, removing that safety blanket can feel like free fall. So to those who've not personally been persecuted because of their own body weight or shape, or have not tried unsuccessfully to change it, suggesting that the largeness, largeness of a body is unimportant can sound wildly irresponsible and may produce feelings of anger and frustration. All of that is cognitive dissonance. All of those emotional responses are valid and understandable given our weight-centric operating environment. But it is the underlying assumptions that these values are based on that is incorrect. Evaluate the facts and reform your beliefs, and not only does that yucky cognitive dissonance go away, but you're now armed with the tools to help others find relief from weight-based suffering, just not in the way that you might have originally thought. Unfortunately, we know that once people think they know something about something, it's harder to replace that knowledge with contradictory knowledge than it was for the original knowledge to stick in the first place. And unfortunately, everyone has some stored beliefs about food, eating, body shape, and health. 
Using weight neutral attitudes about other beliefs, such as that it's wrong to bully someone about their appearance, such as repeated physical activity leads to physical fitness, can bridge the gap and pick at the corners of weight centrism, opening the possibility for perspective change. I'll be covering that later on in the series. The thriving community of weight neutral practitioners, advocates and people is a testament to the fact that it is possible with a bit of work to make that paradigm shift and make it in a determined way that is sticky. It's time to try on a new set of glasses, one where people get to make decisions about their own body and health behaviours without coercion and one where weight loss might not be advantageous, commendable or helpful. Okay, so to wrap up, today I've covered some of the individual, social and systemic ways that enable and reinforce a weight-centric operating environment for health and research professionals, as well as regular people. I've presented the way that our inbuilt cognitive processes of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance can keep us stuck in our old ways of thinking, and I've introduced the concepts of weight discrimination, ethical practice and informed consent. Next time, the episode is called Demystifying Definitions, Demythdefying Assumptions. And that includes the definition of dieting, weight neutral, etc., all the words, the key assumptions that allow weight-centric environment to continue unfettered, and when the Dunning-Kruger effect meets metabolic myths. So why non-experts confidently dishing out food, eating and body advice is a uniquely intractable problem. My podcast promotion for this time goes to Fiona Sutherland, who has the Mindful Dietitian podcast, which is an interview series where she interviews um, prominent weight neutral dietitians. It's fantastic. Get into it if you can. The website is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. The supporting materials, which include the show notes, research links, and self-test quiz are available up front for current subscribers, only five bucks a month, which is a total bargain, uh, or can be purchased in a bundle if you're catching up later. You can see the Unpacking Weight Science uh, website for details. If you'd like to join the discussion about this podcast or this, these concepts, uh, then become a subscriber and uh, get stuck in on those discussion boards. So in your further reading for um, this podcast, I've got three papers. There's a paper on confirmation bias, uh, which basically goes through the underlying principles. It is a paper from a few years ago now, but it's a nice summary. Then there's a paper about cognitive dissonance and specifically cognitive dissonance around reducing obesity stigma, uh, the effectiveness of cognitive dissonance and social consensus interventions. So it's a nice look at obesity stigma, a bit of a summary there because that is what I'll be talking about um, repeatedly over um, the whole breadth of the podcast. Um, plus looking at some strategies that can reduce that stigma using that uh, concept of cognitive dissonance. And then finally, uh, there's a paper around weight centrism uh, in a br from a broad perspective. So weight centrum, uh, centrism and its impacts. And um, it is a really good paper to summarise all the things um, and uh, to sort of uh, get a bit more perspective around things. So spend some time reading those papers. Um, if you don't have time to read all of them, at least read the one on weight centrism as a summary of uh, the concepts in the podcast and also the broad concepts around um, size acceptance and uh, social justice. So thanks for listening. Have a great day.